Hello, I'm Sarah Carnline. I'm part of the sales team at Cranfield Colors, and I am based out of the States. You are listening to our podcast, Color Like No Other, and that is properly spelled with a U, the British way. And I'm Michael Crane, based at the factory in South Wales. Um, I should say, I don't think it's improper to spell the word colour with a U. It's just different. We are different, aren't we? (laughs) Good to hear your voice, Sarah, and And, good to be with you. And good to hear you as well, Michael. Um, As a third-generation colourman, you had the opportunity to not only watch your dad, but your grandfather as well, work in the printmaking ink industry and later on in the oil paint industry. What was that like for you? Well, my grandfather had retired, really, by the time that I became interested in colour, but he and I would discuss the industry and discuss machines and colour in general for many happy an hour, but it was with my father that I had greatest working experience. Okay. And I remember going into the factory, it was mainly on Saturdays when I was not at school and I could go in with him, and of course the factory didn't work on a Saturday, So it was a wonderful opportunity to wander around the empty building, seeing these enormous machines, as they seemed to me as a seven or eight-year-old. I would imagine so. (laughs) And that lovely smell of linseed, which I still enjoy today. Mm. If you work with it every day, after a while you become too accustomed to it, so you hardly notice. But when I get back, if I've been on a week's holiday, for example or I've been away on a business trip, and I step back into the factory, I still find the smell wonderfully evocative uh, today, as I did many years ago. I would imagine so, as you've come back, you've returned and you're in the factory again and again, and I myself also really enjoy the linseed smell. Um, So how did you get into this um, printmaking ink industry and oil paint industry? What did you study at university after school? Well, there must have been something Freudian going on um, because I was convinced I wouldn't go into the family firm. However, at school, I enjoyed art, at least the printmaking side of art. I used to run the school rotoprint printing machine. And I did that partly because I was interested in printing, but primarily because it meant I didn't have to play rugby. (laughs) And rugby is a dreadful British game um, where essentially you get beaten up if you're skinny like I was. And so running the printing press was a way out of that. I then, having left school, went to study printing. Okay. And then moved from that as a second course and concentrated on looking at industrial chemistry for inks and paints. Right. But when I graduated, I didn't go into the colour world. I joined a paper company dealing with technical problems. It was a Swedish paper company. I was based in London, but dealt with complaints across the UK. Ah, you were dealing with complaining. Yes. That sounds enjoyable. (laughs) It was entirely an inappropriate job for a graduate, dealing with very angry people. But it taught me an awful lot. And it taught me skills that were transferable when eventually my father successfully tricked me into the family (laughs) firm. 
<laughs> that's not at all surprising. And I would imagine working with paper now that you're making essentially ink that is supposed to end up on paper or, you know, you might put it on fabric as well. But how did how do you think that helped you in formulations of your inks later on? Well, I think that each of the industries runs the risk of seeing themselves as the centre of the universe. So whether that's the paper industry or the ink industry or those that produce brayers or rollers or printing presses. But I think coming, as I did, from paper into ink allowed me to realise that printmakers deserved and indeed required the best of papers. And that's why today I still believe in a dedicated printmaking paper uh, and also a dedicated printmaking ink and understanding how the two go together and the needs of the ink to suit the characteristics of the paper. It was a great foundation for me. Yeah, indeed. Um, I, I, as a printmaker, when I met you years ago as a undergraduate at the time, I came to a printmaking conference with you, volunteered actually via my professor, who's also named Michael, funny enough. Mm. And I was so intrigued by the Caligo formulation because in the studio, not only was I breathing in harsh vapors, which I've grown to like the smell of turpentine now, but at the time it was a real struggle to clean up in the studio and I would spend just as much time cleaning up as I did printing editions. And when I started using Caligo and was able to clean up an oil-based ink with soap and water, it really changed my time in the studio altogether. My father would have been delighted to have heard that and he would have loved to have met you. Um, It was his invention, Caligo, and historically we made superb and continue to do so superb traditional printmaking inks, but as you rightly say they needed mineral spirits. So whilst the inks weren't themselves the toxic problem or the hazardous problem, it was the dermatitis that could arise through the careless use of mineral spirit, which was always the risk. But in designing Caligo, which is still linseed-based, but has this intentional fault line so that it will emulsify with a liquid soap, that really came at a pivotal moment in printmaking because it allowed universities and colleges to continue with a discipline that otherwise was beginning to be the victim of uh, health and safety concerns over the over the solvents. Yeah, um, speaking of concerns and, and maybe the fall of printmaking, would you say that printmaking went through a difficult time just before you entered into the factory? Um, I think that it's gone through several challenges. Right. Um, I joined the company in the 1980s and I was fortunate to work with a whole load of characters who many of them have passed away now, but it was a great fun place to work. Um, There was an awful lot of tomfoolery going on. I used to dread as a young man taking visitors around the factory because whilst visitors were always fascinated, I couldn't rely upon colleagues to behave seriously. (laughs) So, for example, I remember... Um, introducing one visitor to a chap um, called Di Lewis, I remember. And the customer asked Di, what is your quality policy here at Cranfield? 
And whilst our quality policy was excellent and we aimed very high, Di responded, oh, our policy is, if in doubt, still send it out, because if it's crap, they'll send it back. <laughs> and I can remember being so embarrassed. Oh, and, and another old fellow, when we had visited, visitors, would stick his finger in a lovely big pot of titanium white pull out his finger and then he would lick his thumb but of course to oh, the visitor gosh. it looked like he'd just eaten some product um so they they were great fun uh, um as i say they've all retired but th- at that time the risk to printmaking was the fact that it really wasn't an ink or paper problem it was the harsh chemicals used in plate preparation it was the fact that there were still acid baths and not much else to prepare, especially etching plates. So printmaking itself solved the acid problem. Cranfield solved the mineral spirit cleanup problem. And then the third challenge that came was about 10, 12 years ago with the advent of greater digital technologies, which we felt were going to be a threat because we thought that printmaking would suffer because people would use white wide format and for a while some students in colleges and universities did forsake the etching press or the van der Cook or relief press and instead produce vast works of art which they could hang down the entire side of the art department and we feared that it was over for printmaking but in fact what happened the digital technologies were embraced by traditional printmaking and so people use digital to produce lovely imaginative three and four color plates to be used in traditional um, processes using Caligo inks. So we've come full circle and relief uh, and etching, indeed litho and letterpress are all in really good heart and printmaking as as a discipline is doing exceptionally well again. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. When I was coming through art school, I had never heard of printmaking. I took my first printmaking class and there were maybe six to eight of us in there. And I've just had the opportunity to return back to my university and give a talk, which you and I do often mm-hmm. at university. So we obviously invite listeners to call us if they're interested in hearing either of us speak in the States, the UK, wherever. Um, but I will say that the introduction of the inkjet printers have helped with making pronto plates and people have access to lithography who typically wouldn't have those stone libraries because they are heavy, they are expensive, and it's made things more accessible. So I think I could definitely agree with you on the rise of printmaking. And in of terms of accessible printmaking, I'm sure you have it in the States too, the phenomena here in Europe of urban printing, street printing, sometimes uh, called Draukruben. I'm sure I've pronounced that wrong. Draukruben, I think, is what it is. The other way around, you can have that as well. And uh, where people are taking prints from drain covers and fire hydrant signs and all sorts of things. One trusts with the permission of the owner. Indeed, um, yeah. As one has to be sensible, but um, tote bags and T-shirts and... 
Even uh, now one sees people are producing their own wedding stationery, they're producing business cards and Christmas cards really at their own kitchen table or in a simple studio. So yeah, printmaking at every level is, is in good heart. Yeah, I would say that a lot of printmakers, including myself, are very thankful to the formulation of the Caligo mm. ink because now we can print at home. Mm. You can print with your kids because it's so safe to use and it's still oil-based. So when it's going into those fibers in the paper which you studied and taught me so well the lumens they can hold on to that oil and the oil is so lazy and viscous it's not going anywhere whereas in a water base it, it has a nice feathery look but if you're not looking for that um, these oil-based inks are incredible they really are that's lovely to hear you say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I definitely am a fan, obviously. I'm not biased at all by any no. means. <laughs> um, so going back to working with your dad, what was it like transitioning from being a son to a co-worker? Okay. My father was wonderfully eccentric. I've heard plenty of stories. Yes, and so there was an awful lot of laughter. One small example would be... It was in the days of a coffee percolator when oh, you'd make um, coffee for visitors. And we had visitors on a Friday. And so we'd use the percolator to make some quite strong coffee. And on the Monday morning, he came around offering us all a, a cup of per percolated coffee. Notable from the offer of coffee was the word fresh. Okay. Because what he intended doing, and indeed he did do, was he heated up coffee from the week before so the question I put to you how would you heat up coffee which was three days old before offering it to colleagues I probably wouldn't heat up three day old okay. coffee if, for anyone if you had but... to because you'd committed yourself to providing it how would you go about it I'd probably put it in a cup and pop it in the microwave okay well this was before the day of the microwave oh. so George <laughs> True, yeah. George put the entire contents of the percolator into the kettle and boiled the kettle oh, no. which meant that cups of tea for the next 10 days tasted revolting. In in fact, in the end, we had to throw the kettle away. I was going to say, it I think was, you mean 10 weeks there. It I was don't awful. Think well, that that's out. as far as we could stomach it. Um, so working with him, um, we used to disagree. Um, I have to be honest, as one would in any business, you disagree. But my father was very fair and mm. said to me early on, that I could call him George between the hours of 8.30 and 5 and Sensible. called him Dad the rest of the time so that we could be equals as we wrestled with the challenges um, of the art material world as it was in the 1980s. And so he allowed me to make mistakes and mm. to make decisions and to really experiment as a manager uh, with some decisions which worked others w which didn't but he gave me the freedom to do that for which I'm uh, immensely grateful. I would say in comparison to many other industries the leadership at Cranfield is quite different. I sense a equality amongst um, my superiors I would call you guys. I know you prefer me to call you a colleague but why is that? What is the? How do you guys work that out? Well, that's very kind of you to say. I think we're fortunate that it is a fascinating world. Mm. And we are a small team. And 
we need the skills, the artisan abilities of everybody within our team. And we do such interesting work. So when the Matisse family, working through a print studio in Paris, send a copy of Matisse Jazz book over to us, for us to match the blue. Goodness, what This honor. kind of thing. It is an honour and it yeah. is exciting. And so all of the team are interested. Um, and the same is true for our products. We make, if you see the art world as a pyramid, we're at the top of the pyramid. We make beautiful artist oil paints. We make, make an excellent studio oil, a professional acrylic. We only make really good, highly pigmented um, printmaking inks. So because the products we make are beautiful and because the team are skilled and motivated, I would think that most days we really look forward to coming in to work and we enjoy getting on together and producing a, a beautiful product and providing a service to our customers, which is second to none. Indeed, you know our yeah. full title is Cranfield and the strap line is colour like no other. And when we set upon that as a, a, a strap line, we felt it actually accurately described what we do. It's not only our product range, it is our breadth of skills. You only need to walk around our laboratory and you'll see some of the strangest test equipment, which you simply don't see I thought see you elsewhere. were going to say some of the strangest people and <laughs> well, accents because uh, that is valid. There we are. Well, maybe that's so. But I think, yes. It, it's, In a good it's, way, it's, yeah. yeah. Indeed. So it, it's a breadth of experience and products. I would agree with that. And I would say that while we're all having a really good time and everyone's smiling and happy in the factory, we, we do take it seriously. And as soon as we put on our lab coats and we step into the laboratory to do testing, we are thoroughly going through these quality controls. And I will say that every time I come back to the factory, I do see a new test. Hmm. Just like today, it might be on a 95 Windows PC, but we're checking the color with a photo with a photon camera. And we're making sure that to the micron, our colors are the same every hmm. time. And, and that goes along with consistency of tack and what have you. It's very thorough. And the device you were looking at was called a spectrophotometer. Ah. And we tend to call it a laboratory rather than a laboratory. Um, <laughs> but yes, I know exactly what There's you There's those mean. strange accents. <laughs> I'm one of them. Not at all, yeah. um, Michael, and one final question I have for you. Today I was walking around the factory and I noticed a street sign called Sugarhouse Lane. What's that all about? Well, that is the lane in London where prior to 1977, my father and my grandfather worked before moving the business down to Cumbram. Oh. Um, in those days, it's Sugarhouse Lane is well, it's actually now part of the Olympic Village in, in Stratford in East London, but it was a street in which there were very many colour houses and um, companies like Usher Walker and Shackle Edwards, uh, Capital Colours, Coates Brothers, Johnson and Cumbers, they were all in this strange street, cobble street together. Oh, wow. Um, if I've got time, just two personal recollections of Sugarhouse Lane. Oh, I'd love that. Um, the first is when my grandfather was nearing the end of his life, he wanted to go back and see some of the places that had been very formative for him. 
And so my father and I drove him back up to London and we came into the yard in Sugarhouse Lane where he used to work and the factory, the big building, had just undergone redevelopment as expensive dwelling houses and apartments and it was open because no one had yet moved in. And the builders very kindly let the three of us go in and we made our way upstairs and we went into the room which used to be my grandfather's office. Oh my goodness. And we chatted to the builders and we explained who we were and why we were there. And they were interested and grateful for the explanation that it used to be a colour house making ink and paint because it explained at last why the whole project for them reordering this building had been rather blighted by the fact that each time they drilled into the wall to hang a kitchen cabinet or whatever it may be every time they put the drill into the wall out would come blue and green and red <laughs> dust oh gosh. and we were able to explain and well, the other yeah. memory I have that which we've kept alive even though we're now in South Wales is that on Christmas Eve in Sugarhouse Lane the various ink and paint companies would finish at lunchtime and the staff would come out and have a game of cricket in the street. The cricket bat would be a bit of an old pallet and the ball would be printer's rags tied up with string and they would play that for half an hour before going to the pub. Well, sadly, we're the only ink company for miles around, so there's no one to play cricket with other than ourselves. But we still use the same old bat, and I don't know the history. I know it's ancient, and perhaps we could put a photograph on one of our blogs. I think we should. So we could see the bat we still use today, and we make a, a rag ball, and we have a quick game of cricket before we go off for Christmas. Oh, I love that. And I I would still say we have vibrant camaraderie around the factory still, even though it's just us, the printmaking and oil paint makers here today in Cumbranham. Michael, thank you so much for sharing these stories with me and helping us understand how you became the three-generation color man you are today. Thank you ever, ever so much. It was lovely to talk to you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening.